I'm Pastor Nathan Tomlinson, and this is our new series, Pillars of the Reformed Faith. Uh, in this series, I hope to consider with you uh, the essential things, or some of the most essential things, about the Reformed confessional historical faith. Um, I, I put all those words there, historical and confessional, because it used to be that if I said, I'm Reformed, it was understood by anyone in the, in at least with some awareness of, of ecclesiastical and, and Christian issues, uh, that uh, what I meant was that I was confessionally Reformed. Um, today, we throw the word Reformed around, and it doesn't always have as clear of a meaning. And I want to avoid that. Uh, the purpose for this series, I, I have kind of three thoughts in mind that have led me to desire to do this series for a while. Uh, the first is that uh, at Christ Church, we have on our signs and on our website, uh, the thought that this is a congregation in the Reformed tradition. And what if a, what if a visitor comes who's unfamiliar with what the Reformed tradition is, and asks a random member of the congregation, what does that mean on your sign? Uh, I wonder if we could give a clear, uh, concise answer to that. I suspect many would uh, fumble for an answer. And if that's the case, um, well, just think about it from the visitor's perspective. Your congregation thinks something is important enough as a distinguishing offering of your congregation that it should go on the website, it should go on the sign, and yet it's not important enough for the members to understand. Therefore, the church probably doesn't have anything worth offering. I think that's a fair assessment if members of the church don't even know what it is their church believes or, or stands for. And so this is an important series from that perspective. Uh, additionally, we live in a day and age in which there is uh, vast relativism in our culture. Uh, things that we never thought would be up for debate about definition are now posted with question marks all over the place. And we're told that it, it can be, uh, a definition can be one thing to one person and a different thing to another person. So our, our society, we can't have any conversations Everything blows up into personal attacks because definitions, the idea of an absolute truth, has been thrown out the window. As Christians, Bible-believing Christians, whether you're Reformed or not, you ought to have a desire to stand out from the world when it comes to truth. And that means having clarity about definitions of what things mean in life in general, but specifically when it comes to the Bible and what we believe the Bible teaches. And so where the world is saying, well, um, you know, th this is fluid. Uh, what's a woman? Who can define woman? You know, what's, what's inflation? Let's give it a new definition and then say we don't have it. This is the world we live in. But as Christians, we ought to be able to say, this is what we believe the Bible teaches, 
and it's a clear definition. And in fact, I ought to be able to say of other branches within Christianity, um, this is what they believe according to themselves, and this is why I disagree with them. Uh, rather than just making it a yelling match uh, because uh, we don't have any definitions to work with. Which brings me to the third reason why this series matters to me so much. Uh, the first, so that members of the church can express what it is the church offers or stands for, the Reformed tradition. Second, to stand out in our society to the world as a witness that we have a clear sense of absolute truth and definitions. Um, but third, so that we as believers stop talking at cross purposes. If I were to talk to a hundred people in America today who claim to be Reformed and actually think that they can attach a definition to that, I bet at least 50% of them, if not 80% of them, would say, well, Reformed is synonymous with Calvinism. So to be Reformed, you just have to hold the five points of Calvinism or the five solas of the Reformation or something like that. Well, that is an important part of what it means to be Reformed, but historically and confessionally, there were other things attached to being Reformed. And if we just limit it down to that, we're gonna have some inconsistencies, but we're also going to have a hard time having conversations. That we're gonna have a hard time having conversations with uh, people who don't hold to the Reformed faith. When I get together with my Arminian brothers or my Lutheran brothers and chat about theology, it's not as easy as it should be to have those conversations because they know people who claim to be Reformed who only hold to certain things and not others. And so they assume that's the case for me. Now, in our society, in the church today, how many independent uh, churches, or, or otherwise, they don't have to be independent, uh, each try to define theology in a void. What do we believe? What, what church statement of faith, if you have one, or, or, or who are we, page, or whatever. Uh, and you try to create and sometimes recreate, reinvent the wheel of what doctrine is in the scripture. And so it overlaps with other people's views, but you're using your own language so much that it also has a lot of uh, uh, differences from others who would claim to be in your own tradition, if you even have a tradition. And that can get very baffling. It, it breaks down having conversations with brothers in Christ with whom you may disagree. Uh, whereas the Reformed tradition is not one that was created like that. The Reformed tradition is not just what Calvin thought. It's not about any one individual theologian. The Reformed tradition has been codified. That is, it's been put in print. You can, you can go and look and see what the Reformed tradition believes. It's been done in this way by consensus opinion of a, a vast group of individuals. So, for example, the Continental Reformed, with their three forms of unity, uh, at various points in the development of those documents, had individuals from the churches 
in every part of Europe, except for France, because the King of France wouldn't let them attend. But that means it was a consensus opinion of the Western Church in that day. Uh, similarly, the Westminster Confession of Faith, while it was more limited to the United Kingdom, nonetheless had people from the different parts of that kingdom come together uh, from different viewpoints, but all reformed, so nuances within the reformed tradition, and discuss and debate and come up with this consensus definition. So being reformed isn't something that's always just been up to any individual. It's been codified, it's been put in print. And I think that's a very significant. We should uh, realize that, we should um, remember that and understand that it is defined. And that can help us in our discussions with other Christians. In fact, it can also help us in conversations with people who claim to be reformed. I've had conversations with people who hold office in Reformed churches who took vows to uphold the Westminster Confession of Faith or the Three Forms of Unity. And then were talking to me for advice uh, about what to do about this individual in their church who holds this weird view on fill-in-the-blank. And the first thing I wanted to say is, well, actually, that individual is holding that weird view you talk about. That's actually in the confessions. It's a reformed position. Now, that individual may be legalistic, as you've said, but the first thing we have to establish here is you've taken vows to uphold the confessions, the reformed tradition, and this is part of the reformed tradition. So is the reformed tradition wrong on this point? And then you have a responsibility to bring that up and seek to change officially change that in the tradition, or acknowledge that you're not reformed? Uh, or is this correct, in which case the question is not, uh, how do I shut down that person talking about this doctrine, but how do I help disciple them to not be legalistic about it, or, or whatever the case might be? You see, we talk at cross-purposes because we reformed uh, don't even have a clear conception ourselves. So these are some of the reasons why, to me, this is a very important series uh, for us to have together. And in this series, I hope to talk about six pillars um, of the Reformation. Uh, next week, or next video, I hope to discuss the foundation on which all those pillars are found. The foundation, sola scriptura, scripture alone. That is a foundation that all true Bible-believing Christians ought to uphold. It's something we have in common with our uh, conservative Lutheran and conservative or historic Arminian brethren, that we have a high view of scripture. It's a place we can start for our conversations. Uh, um, but on that foundation of Sola Scriptura, each of the Bible-believing groups, Lutheran, Arminian, uh, Reformed, and, and others, are seeking to build and develop a what do we believe the Scriptures principally teach us? What do they say? And the Reformed faith, uh, the structure of Reformed confessionalism, is upheld off of this foundation of Sola Scriptura with six pillars at least. 
the six pillars I want to discuss in this class are the following. First, let's just call it Calvinism. The first pillar is Calvinism. It's the one pillar that everyone thinks of when they hear Reformed. Uh, but a better way to phrase it that's a little more technical might be Reformed soteriology. Soteriology just means doctrine of salvation or theology of salvation. How are we saved? Uh, this is also referred to as monergism. Monergism speaks of uh, the, the way in which we're saved. Is it a, um, a dual effort, the Holy Spirit plus me equals salvation? Or, or monergism, which is the Reformed perspective, the Holy Spirit comes into my heart and gives me rebirth so that I repent and believe. So monergism, uh, the Reformed view of salvation, is that it is the work of the Spirit from the first to the last, leaving no glory for myself. This can be summarized in a variety of ways. Uh, after Sola Scriptura, the other four solas of the Reformation all get at the Reformed soteriology or Calvinism. Um, in Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, to the glory of God alone. Or you can summarize it with the five points of Calvinism as they're known, TULIP. Um, but uh, I don't think either one of those systems in and of itself uh, summarizes the fullness of Calvinism or monergism or reformed soteriology uh, richly enough. You, you have to bring in elements. Uh, and so there's this, this rich doctrine of how are we saved? Let's call it Calvinism, the first pillar. But as I've already said several times, that may be what most people think of when they hear reformed. And that might be all they think of, but there are other aspects of the historic Reformed tradition as well. So the second pillar we could add to this is uh, covenant theology. Covenant theology is so important. It's a wonderful pillar of the Reformed tradition. If in Calvinism uh, we're looking very theologically, defining terms and the way of salvation, in covenant theology we're looking at the storyline of God's dealings with his people from Genesis to Revelation, from creation to the final consummation when Jesus returns and brings in the new heavens and the new earth. Covenant theology is how we look at this whole thing, the relationship between God and his creatures. And uh, it, it gets at the heart of the question of unity, discontinuity, continuity between the Old and the New Testament. And so covenant theology is a very important part of understanding a Reformed tradition. Uh, a third pillar is uh, ordinary means of grace. Uh, when we think about uh, Calvinism, how are we saved? Then there's the question of what means or tools does God, the Holy Spirit, use to bring about this union with Christ and the beautiful, gracious results of it in the heart of the individual and in the life 
day-to-day uh, -day of the individual. Uh, if you're from different parts of Christendom, you're going to have different answers to that. The Roman Catholic Church would include things like the confessional booth um, and uh, uh, Mary and the saints and the rosary and praying uh, to them and things like that. Um, if you're on the, the perspective of the kind of the Pentecostal end of Christendom, you're going to include in this dreams and visions and personal individualized revelation. But the Reformed, historic Reformed position, holds that God uses the ordinary means of grace. That is primarily and ordinarily, God uses today the reading of the written Word of God, the Bible, the preaching of the Word of God by ordained and called men of God, uh, the right administration of the sacraments of the Lord's Supper and baptism. And uh, depending on what part of the Reformed tradition you are in, uh, prayer would also be included here. Now, the ordinary means of grace, this is one of those wonderful areas where we would be in agreement with the conservative historic Arminian branch often as well, or the more conservative historic Lutheran branch of Christianity, uh, that all of us could agree that these are the ordinary ways that God works within the heart of the individual, word, sacraments, prayer. Well, then a fourth pillar of Reformed theology is regulated worship. Also, we could call this Reformed liturgy. Now, when you use a word like liturgy, evangelicals today tend to say, oh, we don't have liturgy. That's something the Catholics have or the Lutherans have or the Episcopals have, but we don't have a liturgy. But that's a little ridiculous. Liturgy is just how you worship. At what's included in that worship. So liturgy is something everyone has. You may not have it written down. You may not print a bulletin or have a slide on the projector that shows the order of how these things are going to get played out. You may not have a clear sense of it going into worship, what's going to happen next. It may be a, a confusing or a, a, a different type of liturgy every week. Uh, but everyone has a liturgy who goes to worship and, and worships God. It's what happens in worship. The Reformed perspective is not anything goes, nor is it simply as long as God tells us not to, it's okay. Rather, the Reformed view historically has been God tells us what he wants in worship, and that is what we bring, and that alone Regulated worship then would also include a discussion of when we worship. Do we worship Sunday? Why do we worship Sunday? Why not Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday? These are questions of a regulated worship or a reformed liturgy, and uh, these are important questions in the historic reformed faith. Well, the fifth pillar then is uh, reformed ecclesiology. Reformed ecclesiology is the study of church government. 
and uh, there are varying forms of church government throughout church history. There is, of course, the hierarchical view. Uh, Roman Catholicism, for example, would be the epitome of this, um, where you have uh, uh, the Pope as the head of the church, and you have cardinals and councils, and then you have bishops, and then you work your way down, where people are appointed often to a local uh, parish or congregation. Um, so they're varying, uh, the Roman Catholic Church isn't the only example of a, a hierarchical approach to church government. In our day, increasingly, uh, in America at least, there's an emphasis on the complete opposite end of that, an anarchy. We might not use that word, but an anarchy. No leadership in the local church, no membership in the local church, things like that. Often what ends up happening in those congregations, whether they admit it or not, is actually more like a dictatorship. Uh, someone takes control, or some group of people takes control. And, and you don't have a structure in place to guard the members, because you don't have a written membership. And so that's how a lot of abuses can take place unchecked in local congregations. The historic reformed approach, there's nuance within it, but the historic reformed approach is uh, local eldership called and appointed in each congregation. That's not to cut it off from unity with the rest of the Church of Jesus Christ, but the emphasis on authority is the local eldership of the congregation. In Reformed uh, ecclesiology, then, uh, two of the predominant viewpoints are Reformed Presbyterianism or Reformed Congregationalism. Uh, although sometimes you have an independent church uh, seeking to, to fit in the Reformed ecclesiology as well, and we give thanks for that. Um, but Reformed ecclesiology has uh, certain things that it emphasizes, and local eldership for a local membership so that there can be local discipleship and local discipline. That is at the heart of Reformed view a reformed view of the church. And then sixth and finally, there's reformed eschatology. Eschatology is the study of last things. And there are, of course, a lot of views on the end times. And it's one of those subjects where uh, at least most of us acknowledge we have to uh, acknowledge more things we don't know than there are things that we do know. Um, but uh, in a Reformed tradition, uh, you can have a post-millennial perspective, an amillennial perspective, and I think occasionally uh, you'll meet someone who's a classic premillennialist uh, and who can be fairly consistent with the rest of Reformed theology. What you cannot be is the new kid on the block, dispensational premillennialism. I say that's the new kid on the block. It's what most people think of, left behind or uh, late great planet Earth, things like that. Um, but this viewpoint has only been around for about 150 years. Uh, and before that, it was really just not known in any serious Christian circles. Uh, and so there are some limits. If you're a dispensational premillennialist, you cannot be reformed because you can't hold consistently with Calvinism, 
covenant theology uh, or other things like that, uh, Reformed ecclesiology, for example. So um, you can hold to a variety of positions in terms of end-time discussions, but they, the, they all, to be Reformed, have to have an understanding of a single people of God, a unity uh, between the Old and the New Testament in terms of salvation, things like that. Uh, a single return of Christ at the end of the age, the consummation, his judgment, and the new heavens and the new earth. Six pillars of the Reformed tradition. Um, I hope you'll join with me in thinking about each one of them individually. We'll spend at least one week, sometimes more than that, on each pillar. And as I said already, next next video I hope to do um, on sola scripture, the foundation on which all of this is laid. But as we uh, end today, uh, I each week want to provide you with a couple of resources that you could jump into if you want to study the topic of the day's video at greater length. This is a survey. We're not spending 50 weeks on these things. So it is a survey. Um, so what could you read if you wanted to dig into this more? I have two recommendations today. The first, if you want to think about Reformed doctrine or Reformed uh, theology more, the best thing you can do is go to the sources, and that is the Reformed Confessions. One wonderful volume that you can get to help you with this would be this, uh, this volume, which is Reformed Confessions Harmonized. It's edited by Sinclair Ferguson and Joel Beakey. And in this volume, you have what are known as the three forms of unity of the continental Reformed tradition, Canons of Dort, Belgic Confession, and Heidelberg Catechism. You also have the Westminster Standards, Confession, Larger and Shorter Catechisms, and then the Second Helvetic Confession. Now, what they do on each page then is um, go through these the topics uh, systematically, and uh, they lay all of these things side by side. So on this page, for example, is a, is a good sample. We have the discussion of uh, the, the person of Christ and his states, um, Christ uh, in his incarnation. And uh, on the far left, you have the Belgic Confession on this topic, then Heidelberg, Second Helvetic. Canons of Dort is silent on some of these topics, so it just appears blank. Um, Westminster Confession, shorter and larger catechism. You can just compare what they all have to say, their unity or their distinctiveness on these topics across the page. Uh, sometimes there will be multiple uh, parts that aren't discussed by any given um, uh, document. Um, some places like justification, every single one of them will have a definition and a discussion of it. Uh, it's a wonderful volume to see the unity of these things all laid out on a page in front of you topically. The other volume I would highly recommend is uh, Confessing the Faith by Chad Van Dixhorn. This is a reader's guide to the Westminster Confession of Faith. So it takes uh, one of the great confessions of the Reformation and it goes paragraph by paragraph with a very uh, current, readable discussion, devotional style of what the confession is saying and looks into some of the scripture proof texts along with it. One of the other things I love about uh, 
uh, Chad Van Dixhorn's discussion here is that at the beginning of each section, he not only gives you the original wording of the Westminster Confession of Faith, but he also gives you next to it, so you can compare, a modern English uh, study version of the Westminster Confession of Faith, a wonderful uh, thing that was prepared a while back by the Orthodox Presbyterian Church uh, to help us just see in more modern grammar the, and, uh, and uh, maybe shorter sentences the same thoughts uh, without the these and the thous of the original Westminster. So Van Dixhorn puts them side by side so you can see the original and the modern English, and then he discusses each point. But I, I could not recommend this more highly. Of all of the discussions, uh, of all of the devotional material that's out there to discuss the topics of the confessions, I think Van Dixhorn's is the best. Thank you for listening, and I hope you'll uh, join me next time as we consider Sola Scriptura, Scripture Alone.